tonight we're going to look at one called trusting God with our money and time and this is one that um, you won't hear very often I think Michael got up last August and said you maybe hear one of these talks every year but I might have to change that given the research I've done this time but um, let's start out John Wesley was one of um, Britain's greatest evangelists he partnered with the Holy Spirit to lead thousands and thousands to Christ and turn a nation back to God. A distraught man furiously rode up to Wesley one day and said, Mr. Wesley, Mr. Wesley, your house is burnt down. Weighing the news for a moment, Wesley replied, no, the Lord's house is burnt down. And that's one less responsibility for me. Now, that sounds maybe shocking today, maybe pious, but he wasn't sending out a tweet looking for a bigger following. This was his actual reaction to a true story of the terrible news that all his worldly goods had just gone up in smoke. So just imagine that for a moment. Somebody tells you you've lost everything. Fortunately, not his loved ones, but all his material possessions no doubt lots of messages that he'd been working on and everything else which are really valuable to any preacher and it's all gone and his reaction is the lord's house burned to the ground if we could have this quote up on the side uh, his reaction didn't stem from a denial of reality rather it sprung from life's most basic reality that god is the owner of all things and we are simply his stewards that's randy elcon so where does he get that from, you might ask me. And uh, well, you can get that from Psalm 24, verse 1. The earth and everything in it, the world and its inhabitants belong to the Lord. And we see again in James 1.17 that every generous act and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father. So what does the Bible say about stewardship of our money, our possessions and our time? Did you know that there's roughly 2,350 verses concerning money in the Bible? And we're not going to do them all tonight. You'll be really pleased to hear. Um, but that's almost twice as many verses as there are about faith and prayer combined. Surprising? Jesus had a lot to say about money. The scholarly estimate is he spoke about money 25% of the time. So that's one quarter of his messages, Jesus was speaking about money and possessions. 17 out of his 39 parables dealt with the topic of money. The only subject Jesus taught more about the money was, guess it, the kingdom of God. So the top message of Jesus, the kingdom of God. The second message of Jesus, money and possessions and how we steward them. And then there's a massive fall off to the third and fourth place. Jesus talked about money three times more than he talked about love. Seven times more than he talked about prayer. So I need to confess to you tonight that our church is not taught enough on stewardship. And the reason why is probably because the emphasis on money we see in other contemporary churches, um, it can feel a bit overwhelming and even a bit sickening. I used to go to a church where there was a message every single week about money. But I was doing the maths today and I thought, well, if Jesus preached on it a quarter of the time and there's a half hour message in every service, maybe a 10 minute message about giving is about right. So I got convicted 
because I was very judgmental of that. And I know many of you, you might feel the same as me, that uh, it feels like a bit of an overkill when people are going on about money all the time. But this is the word of God. So don't worry, I don't think we're going to do the 10-minute giving message every week. Are you happy about that? But I think we do need to be talking on it more because obviously it's an issue which is um, a very important part of discipleship. So the reason people don't talk about money, uh, well, some people do. I think we've all seen the pop star mics and the tele-evangelists and the, uh, the jets and millionaire lifestyles that, that some people go down that track of. But uh, apart from those kind of caricatures, um, there is a real issue with money in the church. If we go back to the Reformation, one of Luther's big beefs 500 years ago was indulgences. You know what indulgences were? Payments that you would pay to the priest to absolve you of your sin. Crazy, hey? Where did they get that one from? I don't know. 500 years ago is a long time, but something went badly wrong. And that's why Martin Luther um, nailed a few things onto the church door and said, let's have a chat about these things. In fact, if we think about it, and this hadn't dawned on me until I was doing this message, that corruption with money extends all the way back to the 12 apostles. If Judas was an eyewitness to Jesus' ministry, he saw it all. And he could sell him out for 30 pieces of silver. Why would I think that I'm automatically safe from the corruption of money? It's challenging stuff, this, isn't it? So only with the Spirit's help can we examine ourselves in the light of Scripture and through brothers and sisters who exemplify God's outrageous generosity. And... Um, you know the old thing about the speck and the log in your eye? Well, I think a lot of us maybe have a log of mammon in our eye that we're, we're not aware of. and We need to probably be careful when we judge others around this area. It's certainly not one where I want to be judging because um, I know that uh, the minute that I think I've got something right, there's probably a log in my own eye that needs dealing with. I wonder how much forcefully today Jesus would tell us that we can't serve God and mammon. Mammon, for those of you who don't know, and for all the kids who are in with us today, is the lowercase g God of money and possessions. And he likes to sell us luxuries and tell them that we need them. We really do need these extra things to make our life better. Although what we often find is we just don't find the, the joy and the happiness that... Uh, is at the heart of what Jesus offers us. Explicitly there, Jesus is talking about who we worship. So behind the whole thing of money, it might seem like an innocuous thing to you. It's just something that you pay for stuff. There's a God, and there's a God who's looking for our worship. Now, if we add to that fact that Australians have the highest median income in the world, and... Um, we, uh, we don't think we're that rich as a nation, but we really are. And uh, what I do like about this nation is that it's not the average as in the American average, which is higher than ours, because some have an awful lot, but a lot have a, a little. And so I think the minimum wage, should, as of the 1st of July, crept up to 23.23 .23 for any 21-year-olds 20, here. 
I know for my kids who've been earning 17, 18, 19, 20, it kind of gradually gets up to that point. And that might not sound like a lot of money to you, um, based on what you earn um, as uh, probably a, a long-time working adult, but um, in some countries, the average is about four, 450. So we really do need to understand that we're a rich country and we need to look at these scriptures that talk about rich people and just look again because they do apply to us. So we need the spirit and the word to audit our lives in this area, to challenge both our assumptions and our actions when it comes to money. Yeah, I know none of us like talking about it. So pastorally, I guess if Jesus taught on money one out of four times, then we do need to be faithful to his commands to um, disciple people in this area and um, to teach the things he's taught and to emphasize what he emphasizes. Now, if we can move on, my love. Um, the reason why is because scriptures are very clear. Your spiritual life and trust in God is directly connected to how you manage your money, possessions, and time. That's the one point of this whole message. And it might not seem like a, a major connection, but we're going to find out why it is. In this talk, we're going to look carefully just at um, three particular Bible passages. That's just nine verses of the 2,350 that there are on stewarding resources. But even these three verses will give us an idea and a scope of what the Bible says about our money, possessions, and time. So I invite you to let your guard down and let these scriptures speak directly to your hearts. These aren't my words. These aren't whoever you think is an extreme example of um, uh, a misrepresentation of teaching on giving in the church. These are the words of scripture. So we need to allow them to examine our hearts. And if it makes you feel uncomfortable or convicted, that's good. Because that's what the, that's what the Bible's designed to do. So if it's a feeling of uncomfortableness, you just got to go with it and ask why. If you're convicted, that's the Holy Spirit doing it. But Holy Spirit, I pray, shine a light on where we need to change so we can invite you to transform our minds to become more like you, Jesus. And we silence all voices of condemnation or competition, for we know these are not from you, Father. Amen. I've chosen these scriptures as they're from pastoral letters and they're written directly to churches and they explicitly address how we trust God with our money, possessions and time. I'm also going to make passing reference to a few other scriptures that set our context for this series that we're doing called Breathe. Next slide, please, my love. So this series, we're looking at five things and so far we've covered hearing the word and gathering in worship. Now, these five essential rhythms, they're life signs of a healthy faith. They're the non-negotiables that we have. And so we're building up a picture. And already we know from what we've covered in Word and Worship, <laughs> it's been good. It's been good, this series. It's been good, again, to do what seems to be obvious, what we might want to teach to our kids and our grandkids as the, uh, the fundamentals that they will do after we've taken our last breath. We want to see the church continued like it has for 2,000 years and largely stay on track. And where there are excesses, 
there's always the word of God and um, some kind of renewal and reformation to bring us back to the center of what um, the church is called to do. And as disciple makers, and I'm talking not professional pastors here or anybody else who sees themselves in that kind of professional capacity, but as parents, as friends, as brothers and sisters, we need to, um, we need to uh, teach each other these principles. Now, you might look at those five there and think, you know, there's some heavy hitters, word and worship, stewardship might not be anywhere near your top five. But um, I want you to understand that it's actually uh, more vital than we realize. And this is probably why Jesus focuses on it. Because um, um, during the first talk we did on the word, we heard feedback, honest feedback, very honest feedback from our youth. And the feedback was this, we have the time, we just don't do it. Now, that might be really frustrating if you're a parent and you want your kids to read the word, but listen to it. We have the time. We just don't do it. So how we use our time and how we use our money is what this subject is all about. Unless we make God our first priority, we're likely to keep hearing statements like, I haven't got the time to go to the worship gathering tonight. I can't attend the prayer meeting because I've got another commitment. Don't ask me to give or go on a mission. And don't ask me to share my faith. Because if we don't prioritize those things, they're not going to happen. What we actually do instead um, of these godly priorities is what we actually value and what we seek first. Now, that could be sport, entertainment, time alone, our own comfort, or whatever. And you see people in the world, they run after these things because they don't have anything else. But if we just follow those patterns and we don't, uh, prioritize these things, then our kids and our friends, what example have they got to follow? They're going to make a judgment and an assessment of what value our Christian faith has and what commitment we have to following Jesus. So here is the fundamental guiding scripture on priorities for us all. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously and he will give you everything you need. See how Jesus is addressing the first and second priorities of his preaching roster there in that one statement. Now you can take that one to the bank all the way. And uh, we've done an awful lot of teaching here on the kingdom. The kingdom in the vineyard is our primary theology. And we've kind of um, uh, given as much as we can, I guess, to to following after that. But But I think where we've... Um, missed out is this area around resourcing and how we respond. And I think part of that is a cultural thing because the vineyard was born in uh, the 70s. Who's seen that movie, The Jesus Revolution? I see a few hands. I'd suggest all the others, if you haven't seen it, go and see it. It's a great movie, probably the best Christian movie I've seen. But it actually came about in the hippie area in California. Now, if you can head over to California today, it's a pretty kind of relaxed place. It's not a typical um, uh, place to go to get a, uh, a kind of heartbeat of the world. But in the 70s, can I tell you, uh, I don't think you could get more relaxed than you had in the 70s. And whether that was through lifestyle or um, just a, an attitude to life. And I think the vineyard was born in that place where... We wanted to be relaxed about our faith. We wanted to be opening and welcoming. But I think that can also breed a culture of uh, laziness and also a culture where we um, don't take things as seriously as others. 
And um, yeah, I'm beginning to hear a few voices around the vineyard challenge some of those assumptions and maybe say those values are not vineyard values, but actually maybe they're just Californian values and particularly hippie values. So why do we chase after other things? He's promised to give us everything we need. Well, because Jesus is not Lord of our money and time. To be Lord means that he's the boss. He's the one who has the say. Um, God is the owner of all things, and we are simply his stewards. And as good stewards, we should use everything we have to point others to God and to advance his kingdom. Again, we're back to the heart of what this message is all about. Now, I want us just to take a moment to breathe as we've been doing through this series and just recognize as we breathe, we invite the Holy Spirit to come and fill us. So, Holy Spirit, come and fill me up and I ask you to write this on my heart that the world belongs to you. And Lord, I'm a steward and I ask you to make me a good steward. Amen. Now, there's loads of quotes going to come through today in this message because I figured it was good to hear what voices throughout the history of the church have said uh, on the back of their interpretation of the Bible. So here's a Wesley quote, and it's a hard hitter. Do you know that God entrusted you with that money all above what buys necessities for your families to feed the hungry, to clothe the naked, to help the stranger, the widow, the fatherless, and indeed, as far as it will go, to relieve the wants of all mankind? How can you, how dare you defraud the Lord by applying it to any other purpose? I would have liked to have met John Wesley, but probably not on that day. <laughs> Next, St. Augustine, church father. Um, if you don't know who St. Augustine is, I guess it doesn't matter, but he was um, in North Africa and a Latin father who laid out some strong foundations in theology. Didn't get it all right, but uh, he was a pretty good guy. Find out how much God has given you, and from it, take what you need. The remainder is needed by others. I thought he did a better job there of being succinct than our friend Wesley. Next one, John Piper. Some of you will know John Piper and respect him as a theologian. The person who thinks the money he makes is meant to mainly increase his comforts on earth is a fool, Jesus says. Wise people know that all their money belongs to God and should be used to show that God, and not their money, is their treasure, their comfort, their joy, and their security. Wise words. And the last one in this segment. At the end of your life on earth, you'll be evaluated and rewarded according to how well you've handled what God entrusted you. That's Rick Warren. And that's the sober reality, isn't it? We can be absolutely confident that we won't face judgment for uh, sin or even face death. Uh, that in the end, Jesus has faced those things for us. But we will stand before our Lord and have to give an account. And as we give an account, he's going to ask us this question, what did you do with what I gave you? So, that's a challenging question. I was saved at 20 and I kind of formulated my answer to that question when I was 22. My answer was, have it all, Lord, my whole life, 100%. And from that moment, I turned my back on um, earning and a career. Uh, I'd grown up in poverty and I was doing uh, a PhD in maths. I had a full scholarship to do that. And there was likely a very high paying career going to follow on after that. But in that moment, as a young man at 22 years old, I figured if my life was worth anything, 
it was worth more than the money that I could make through doing any kind of career. So I said, um, I'm going to go and volunteer at the local church. And that's exactly what I did. And Helen came along just a little bit after that and met me doing that. And she did a very similar thing. Now, there's not much need for pioneering harmonic analysis around the church. So I started out volunteering in the church, cleaning toilets, sweeping floors, and doing basic admin. Um, and as I stayed in that realm of running a community center, I learned how to do some other things like uh, cutting my teeth in pastoring uni students. And that's where it all began for me at 22 when I said to the Lord, I'm going to follow you all the days of my life. Now, I only share that to say how serious I am about this stewardship question because he is worthy of it all. I love what John Wimber says, the founder of the vineyard. He used to say, I'm just loose change in God's pocket. He can spend me how he pleases. Now, I don't want you all coming to me tomorrow morning and saying you've all resigned your jobs because that's not the point. The point is you do what the Father's put on your heart to do. But weigh that question very seriously. What did you do with what I gave you? Again, God is the owner of all things, if we could click again. And we are simply his stewards. As good stewards, we should use everything we have to point others to God and to advance his kingdom. Now we're going to get to the three scriptures. I'm going to go through these and then we'll, we'll wrap up and we'll go home. But in this moment, I want us to, again, just breathe and invite the Holy Spirit to come and fill us up and to write these things on our hearts. So Holy Spirit, as we breathe you in, we understand, Lord, that these are your laws. These are your principles and they're higher than what we can imagine or, or, or ask or think of. So we ask, Lord, would you write them on our heart? Amen. Okay, the first passage we're going to look at is 1 John 3, 16 to 18, obviously written by the Apostle John. And in this first pastoral letter um, for the kids and youth, the letters were written by certain people, often apostles, to, uh, to churches in different situations. The context of the passage is encouraging people to love by sharing our stuff, our money, our possessions, and doing that within the church family. So the text reads like this. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity, we don't really use the word pity today. Nobody wants to be pitied. So I like the NLT that uses compassion, has no compassion on them. How can they love? How can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but in actions and in truth. Now, the theological points to take from here, it's not hard passage to interpret. I think, uh, I think anybody could see what's going on here. But the love um, is exemplified by Jesus giving us 100%. He laid down his life for us. He gave everything for us. And what John is saying is that our love now is that we should lay our lives down for one another. We should give 100% to each other. Now, I don't think I need to die for Michael. That's probably not going to do anything. If somebody tries to shoot him, I could take a bullet for him. But the laying down our lives is if Michael needs something. Sorry, Michael, I keep picking on you tonight, but you're right in front of me. Uh, then he's my brother. 
and I need to be there for him in whatever way I can and give everything of what I've got in terms of my gifts, my time, and whatever. So that's the key theological point here is that um, the love of God now looks like not just us worshiping the Lord. That's great. There's a practical application. We've got to actually look after one another, and it involves money, time, possessions. Because the reality is now we're, we're family, and my four sisters who don't know the Lord, they're my family too, but they don't know God. And I can reach out to them. I can look after them. But I've also got to now look after you guys. You're part of the family. And this is the radical thing that the church brought about. And so the practical application that we see the brand new church doing is if they saw a brother or sister in need and they had the ability to help, they would meet the need. I think that's really challenging, isn't it? Because you can say, well, is that my responsibility? Or did they screw up somehow? Is it, is it their fault that they got in that situation? We can play all of these games, but, but this wasn't the story. If we think about inner transformation um, in terms of how we respond to that scripture, it also says, if I'm not moved with compassion to act when I see a brother or sister in need, then I should be asking why. Because actually, this is what God's character is and his nature is. And he wants to change us to be more like Jesus. So we invite the Holy Spirit in to change us from the inside out. So the root problem is likely to be that we don't trust God to provide for us. That's what's under all of this. Because if you trusted God would provide, you wouldn't have any worries about giving away what you had. Because you just know more was coming in. If you've got a limitless bank account... I don't think you kind of think, oh, we'll just spend a little bit just in case. You just know it's going to keep coming. So you can spend what, what you want or what you think you need to do in that moment. And so some reflections on this scripture for me is that I came to faith uh, after just two visits to the church. On the third Sunday I was there, I'd already prayed the prayer in my own time, um, but I prayed it again with people on the, uh, on the Sunday. But in the two visits to church, um, I could see that people loved one another in a different way. It was love that I hadn't seen in the world. And I didn't see people handing each other gifts or something, but just the way that Christians are, there, there was a, a trust and a responsibility. I could see the love as a non-Christian. So this stuff is, is, is real. The early church grew exponentially by demonstrating extraordinary generosity and love for the poor. And that was against the norms of society. And even its fiercest critics could not deny this. They wrote about it, um, just how the church would care for the poor. Nobody else did. And so it was uh, an easy way to show that, um, that, you know, God was behind us when you're giving away your stuff to help those who need it. So at the end of Acts chapter 2, we read how the very first church held everything they had in common and how they sold property and possessions and gave to anyone who had a need. And uh, I know we associate that behavior these days with some weird cults who might do that kind of stuff. But if it was good enough for the early church, I hope once again, it says in uh, Revelation about the bride that makes herself ready. I hope once again, we can have that level of trust an openness around our stuff. And I think there could be ways of dealing with it, with the technology we have now, where we could kind of share in a fair way like that. I'm not talking about socialism or any government system. I'm talking about 
God the Father looking after all of his family by saying, you guys, I've given you what you have so that you can show my love to one another. Um, the next quotes we've got coming up, uh, we've got a, a 13th century theologian. Always good to throw one of those in, eh? Thomas Aquinas. Man should not consider his uh, material possession his own, but as common to all, so as to share them without hesitation when others are in need. He's basically parroting scripture there, isn't he? Uh, the next one, um, this is another heavy hitter, uh, Soren Kierkegaard. 19th century theologian, the Bible is very easy to understand, but we Christians are a bunch of scheming swindlers. We pretend to be unable to understand it because we know very well the minute we understand, we're obliged to act accordingly. So um, another guy I probably wouldn't like to meet at all, let alone on his bad days. <laughs> God is the owner of all things. We're simply his stewards and as good stewards, we're to use everything we have to point others to God and to advance his kingdom. So Holy Spirit, this stuff, it really is challenging. And we've only read a few verses and already we're thinking, how on earth can I do that? But Lord, you've done it and I've seen you do it and move people in, in our lives to, uh, to give. So Holy Spirit, we just breathe you in now. And we just ask you to come and change us from the inside to trust you and to know that you're always going to provide for us. Lord, and to be um, generous givers to your body and beyond. In Jesus' name, amen. Next passage, uh, this is 1 Peter, chapter 4, verses 8 to 10, and uh, obviously written by Peter. And uh, here the encouragement is to love by service and hospitality within the church family. Now, this is something I don't hear, hear talked about enough. People will talk, they want your money, please give me your money. And that's, that's great because that's important. But actually at the heart of it, you know what's more valuable than your money? Your time. You. Your very skills that God's given you. You've been made uniquely and nobody else can bring what you've got to bring. So this is what this says. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you've received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. So every one of us has been given gifts. Um, the Bible talks about the measure of those gifts, and it doesn't matter what you've got. Every gift you have is given from God. But we're given it to give away our talents, our skills, our spiritual gifts, and it's to serve others. In other words, to steward Steward, the uh, root word in Greek, is just like a household manager, a housewife, a house husband, somebody who has a budget and they've got to live to that budget. So we steward our gifts. Our gifts are not given for our individual profit or status, but are given for the common good. Now, there's a big upside-down kingdom as far as the world goes. And for anybody who works in any high-powered or high-driven um, kind of environment, and it doesn't have to be lots of money, it can all be about status, who's the boss, and people telling you where your position is down the pecking order. Um, this is not the nature of the kingdom. The practical application here is obvious. Each of us needs to use our gift to serve others, and this is in a church context, and particularly hospitality. So it also says in Scripture elsewhere, don't just invite friends who can invite you back, you know, because we can all do that. The world does that, doesn't it? Let's have friends over. We had a lovely time. 
had a Christmas in July this week with a few folks, and we had Sam and uh, uh, Katrina over and uh, a few others as well in this holiday period. Um, and that that's great to do that. Invite your friends. But Scripture challenges us to go and invite people that we don't know. People on the margins, you look around and think, oh, I wonder if that person's ever ever been invited for a meal. And um, this is the nature, isn't it, of the banquet that some people were got too busy. We all get busy, don't we? And sorry, we can't turn up. Well, I'm afraid we're going to go and grab the people off the street, the people who need to hear it and can respond, and the door's going to shut. And that's very challenging. So hospitality is, is something, yes, definitely invite your friends. But if you're only inviting friends and not looking for those on the margins, then we're kind of missing as well some of what this is about. So again, the inner transformation around this scripture, proximity creates friction in any family. Who agrees with that statement? I can see at least one hand. I can tell you proximity uh, creates a lot of friction. And with the people you love the most, the people that you're most committed to, sometimes just being close to somebody, you end up rubbing each other up the wrong way. And um, our natural reflex when we get hurt is to pull away. And the devil tempts us to distance ourselves when somebody hurts us, to distrust one another and to divide over such hurts. You ever have an argument with a loved one and you, you just don't want to speak to them. You don't want to kind of own up anything. So you just kind of avoid them for a bit. Or maybe it's somebody who, who's at church that maybe they offended you five years ago because they took the last biscuit on the plate and it was your biscuit and you haven't spoken to them since. We're, we're, we're fickle little creatures. Um, but... You see, the thing here is what's behind the scripture because it's talking about sins and it's talking about grumbling. What's that got to do with hospitality? It's very hard to bear a grudge when you're having somebody over for a dinner and you're serving them and you're giving them all your best stuff. You find very quickly that that phrase, love covers over a multitude of sins. It's no philosophy exercise. It's just a practical way of getting over the argument. So if you've had an argument here tonight with your wife, your husband, or your kids, then I suggest take them out for a meal afterwards and spoil them because you won't be able to bear the grudge. This is really simple, practical advice. Um, so again, we're talking about inner transformation. This is, we get changed from the inside out. We all do silly things and we could all probably recount stories of um, ways that we've held grudges or offenses. But um, proximity in serving one another creates an opportunity for the Holy Spirit to bring real reconciliation on the inside. So live and love by the maxim, don't bear a grudge, bake a cake. So if I get lots of cakes this week, I forgive you already for the grudges. <laughs> no, you can just bring me the cakes. That's good. No, don't. I'm, I don't need any more cake. Um, so my reflection on this passage, it's not just our money and possessions we should give to meet each other's needs, but actually we need to give the most valuable thing we have, our time. And sometimes that time is just to be social and to share, but other time it's, it's, it's our gifts. We help one another. We, we listen to one another. We, um, we're there for one another as family. Now, the last three verses and the last passage we're going to look at tonight, and I'll wrap up here because I think we've covered money and possessions in the context of the church. We've covered time and our gifts. So this third one is from 2 Corinthians 
um, 9, 6 to 8. And this was written by the Apostle Paul. Generosity is encouraged particularly towards mission with the end in view. So he's invoking something about the end time and judgment just before this passage. And he's talking here a principle um, that we're now going to read. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things and at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. So giving to both local church and mission is expected, but how much you give is open to the measure of faith and trust you have in God's ability to provide for you. Our attitude also matters to God. It's actually a joy and an honor to support the advance of God's kingdom. And we also find there that we will be rewarded according to generosity in the final judgment. And um, we might, might not be bothered about that, but Jesus will ask us all, what did you do with what I gave you? And I want to be honoring my Lord and say, well, I gave it my best shot. And that's what uh, this scripture is challenging to do. We're going to, again, lean on a few uh, um, church greats and uh, borrow their wisdom. C.S. Lewis is first up. I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. The only things we can keep are the things we freely give to God. Wow, that man was a great thinker. And if you just dwell on that one for a moment, you realize just how profound he is. Uh, George Muller, missionary to the poor, he wrote this, uh, God judges what we give by what we keep. Again, another really tight one to, uh, to take with you. Now, when we read that, the point is, we're not after the millionaires to give, you know, 100,000. That would be nice, but that's not the point. Who does Jesus hold up as the example in Scripture? The widow with her two little coins. Because what she exhibited in giving those two little coins is she gave everything she had. There was nothing left. And so that was what Jesus was talking about. That's the level of trust that she could give everything she had. So this isn't to try and extort you. There's no big collection. There's no project that we're trying to do. This is, this is just Scripture. And this is just church mothers and fathers and how they've reacted to uh, this area of stewardship. Mother Teresa, give, but give until it hurts. God gives us things to share. God doesn't give us things to hold. A few other missionaries, uh, we've got Hudson Taylor. The less I spent on myself, the more I gave to others, the fuller of happiness and blessing did my soul become. The next one, missionary to India, Amy Carmichael. You can give without loving, but you cannot love without giving. Next one. I will place no value on anything I have or may possess except in relation to the kingdom of Christ, David Livingston. And this last one, which I think is a real one to take to the bank and keep and learn, it's not what you, sorry, it's what you sow that multiplies, not what you keep in the barn. So when we're talking about multiplying our faith and planting churches, we're really talking about our time, our money, our possessions, and going after the kingdom with everything we've got. And if we hold it back for whatever reason, we're not actually sowing. So we have to sow, and it's you sharing the gospel. If you've got no uh, lines in the water, how can you expect to catch a fish? 
These are simple principles, but we have to prioritize these things. Again, let's remember this simple thing. God is the owner of all things, if we could click once more time. And we are simply as stewards. As good stewards, we should use everything we have to point others to God and advance his kingdom. So as we bring this home, let's just take a moment to breathe. And Holy Spirit, again, we just recognize this is, this is stretching, Lord. Um, to give up everything for you is, um, seems like such a risk, Lord. But um, if we can take a risk on anybody, um, give us the confidence that it can be you. And whether we start giving 1% when we've been given nothing or 10% when we've been given 2% or whatever it is that we do, or whether tomorrow we speak and share the gospel with somebody. We ask Holy Spirit, we thank you that you're with us, empower us, and Lord, reap a harvest through us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Last reflections on these scriptures. The practical application here is generously give to church and missions as much as you can spare. The Old Testament model of a 10% tithe and the principle of first fruits are very helpful starting points for growing in our generosity towards God and his kingdom. We're encouraged to give back a portion of what God has given us, trusting God in faith to bless us abundantly in all things and at all times. In terms of inner transformation, don't come under compulsion to give. Do it freely and joyfully. There is a reluctance, if there's a reluctance to give to church and missions, explore what's the underlying reasons for that. There's a reason under there why you're not doing it. And it could be, again, this issue of trust, trusting God. And so you want to be able to resolve that. And God asks us in this one area to test him. You remember the devil's temptations, you know, don't put the Lord God to the test. Well, actually, it says in Malachi, the Lord says, test me in this one area. So bring the full tithe into the barn. And this is Old Testament, so it's in the context of that. But the principle of generosity is, again, trust. If we trust him with the first portion of what we've got, he blesses the rest of it. So um, um, test him. And uh, what I'd encourage you to do is start giving to church and missions. And as you do that, start keeping a record of the blessings um, and things that have got nothing to do with money, but all of a sudden they seem to start working and people look at you and think, oh, what's, what's going on with you? You seem to have all things together. Well, God promises to bless us. Um, you can read that in Malachi. If your problem is that you don't trust the church, then come and talk to me in our giving practices. I, like you, don't like it when ministers of the Lord um, abuse their position and they give the church and Jesus a bad name. Um, and I can tell you what we do in this church and hopefully we've been transparent throughout about uh, what, what our beliefs are around giving. You could read them on the, the webpage, vbw forward slash give. Um, but it is truly much more fun to give than receive. It's a faith adventure. And once you get this, it actually becomes addictive. So if you think computer games are really good, or you think, you know, maybe I, there's a great show on Netflix to watch, this stuff is real because you get to change lives. And so you can play with this. And I don't mean play with it in a sense of um, not take it seriously. I mean, this is a principle. There's a principle here about us sowing and when we can reap. So when I was preaching in that church in Swansea, you know this story, but... Um, um, I didn't receive any money at all. So I didn't say, could you pay me to preach? Nothing like that. You freely give, you freely receive. That's the principle by which I live. Uh, I see it in scripture. But I was investing £100 in a Nigerian family who were looking to stay on in the UK and they would be kicked out by the end of the month. And I didn't have the money that they needed <laughs> 
I, I would love to be Santa Claus, you know, and, and just meet all your bills and all your needs, but I can't and I shouldn't. It's actually God who does it. But what I can do is that I can give a gift and I can pray and I can bless that gift as seed for God to provide. And that's what I did. And the joy for me was seeing how God brought about 15,000 pounds in the space of three weeks. The guy is crying on the floor. His little girl says to him, Daddy, you're crying like a baby. Because this stuff means all of us have been there when we've needed something. And when somebody's come through or God has come through for us, this is, this is as big as it gets. Now, I'm going to carry that joy in my heart for all my days that for that family, it made a difference. Their life has changed. So this stuff is fun, and the kingdom is released when we demonstrate faith and trust in God to provide. When Helen and I were in our mid-20s in the UK, we were taught this mission principle. I think we've said this before. So where you want to go. So when the Lord called us to Australia, we neither had the finance or satisfied the visa conditions as we were low-paid church workers. Our first step of obedience was to buy a one-pound picture book, just a picture book of, you know, Uluru and places like that. But what we were doing in that is taking a step with what we had towards that vision. And eventually, as we kept moving towards it, we needed to raise $100,000. And we were church workers, and I'd only just trained as a brand new teacher. The chance of me doing that in my own strength was, was near impossible. Um, but the Lord gave us the faith to believe, and just before my 35th birthday, um, we had the money we need to get that last five points to come here as the Lord had called us here as missionaries. Now, remember this provision always follows a vision. So if you've got a vision of the Lord saying something and you have great faith for things, when you see something, you go after it like this. And provision follows vision. So get a vision of what God is saying and the provision will come, but you have to move towards it. Um, so that's how we've seen God grow our faith. And the very last point I want to make is we're now in our ninth year of serving you as senior pastors. It's gone quick, hey? And we're very grateful for all of you who've supported this church with your faithful giving. We've chosen to serve God with um, our time and we, we don't have another job. We don't have another wage. I serve and volunteer on an international ministry and a national ministry. I don't get paid for those things. Don't have a second house or another investment. So what, what, what you guys give to God and to this church in terms of your response to him, that's been a tremendous blessing to us. And we have to trust God daily to provide for us, as you do. But we're just very grateful that we're partnering with you guys because this is what it's all about at the end of the day. I was able to say to somebody this week, um, our church is going to bless you in that, in a missions thing. I'll tell you about it. August is our missions month and we're going to get behind something. Um, and you know, it's just so good to be a steward of what God gives us through this church, to be able to bless others, to bring faith for breakthrough. But I just want to say thank you so much for your response to God because this is, this is the reality. When you partner with this church, it's about advancing his kingdom and it's both here and to the ends of the earth. And I just want to encourage you by reading this blessing from 2 Corinthians 9, 10 to 15. So I wonder if you stand and I want to bless you now as the pastor of this church. Helen, why don't you come up? And these words of scripture are very powerful. This is Paul blessing the Corinthians for giving to the Macedonians to a mission work. 
And we just want to bless you using these words of scripture. For God is the one who provides seed for the farmer and then bread to eat. In the same way, he will provide and increase your resources and then produce a great harvest in generosity in you. Yes, you will be enriched in every way so that you can always be generous. And when we take your gifts to those who need them, they will thank God. So two good things will result from the ministry of giving. The needs of the believers will be met and they will joyfully express their thanks to God. As a result of your ministry, they will give glory to God for your generosity to them and to all believers will prove that you are obedient to the good news of Christ. And they will pray for you with deep affection because of the overflowing grace God has given to you. Thank God for this gift, too wonderful for words. Amen. Amen.